One of my favorite authors, the famous British Christian writer, Clive Staples Lewis, otherwise known C.S. Lewis, seems to have drawn from Revelation chapter 5, when he was writing in the Chronicles of Narnia, particularly in the fifth book, here's what he said. You'll see a picture on the screen of what I'm talking about, but... uh, Lewis says that between the children and the foot of the sky, there was something so white on the green grass that even with their eagle's eyes, they could hardly look at it. They came on and saw that it was a lamb, you'll see in the next slide. And the lamb says this, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Then they noticed for the first time that there was a fire lit on the grass and fish roasting on it. They sat down and ate the fish, and it was the most delicious food they had ever tasted. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? There is a way into my country from all the world, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into yellowy gold, and his size changed. And he was Aslan himself. In the picture, you'll see the movie picture there. He was towering above them and scattering light from his mane, and then he said, I will not tell you how long or short the way will be, only that it lies across a river. But do not fear that, for I am the great bridge builder. I am the great bridge builder. And if you know Lewis, the great bridge builder, he's referring to is Jesus Christ himself, who is both the lion and the lamb. He is the lion and the lamb. And we'll see both of those in today's text. Look at Revelation 5. Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. In between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain... And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This text is proposing to us today that God wants you to worship Christ. Christ is the central main character here, the focus of all of the attention in Revelation chapter 5. In Revelation 5, the, the, uh, the, the focus here of attention is shifting to the seven-sealed scroll. Notice it's in the hand of God. The scroll could not be read because it was rolled up. It, and not only was it rolled, it had been sealed with seven seals. And so John could see writing on both sides of the scroll, which meant that nothing more could be added to that scroll. What was written was something that was completed. It was final. You say, what does the scroll represent? The scroll represents Christ's title deed, if you will, to all that God the Father had promised him because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And the book of Hebrews, by the way, shows us that Christ is supreme and superior in all ways, but particularly that Christ is the heir of all things, Hebrews 1 says. Uh, it also shows us that Christ is the kinsman redeemer that we've been looking for, the one who is willing to give his life to set the Christians free from their bondage, to restore our lost inheritance. And so as Christ moved uh, sorry, as he removed those seals from the scroll, various dramatic events took place. You need to read Revelation 6 through 19. You say, well, what's in the scroll? Well, that's that's basically Revelation 6 to 19 in particular. See, you have the, the seventh seal introduces the seventh trumpet, uh, the seven trumpet judgments. There's a series of, of three judgments in Revelation 6 through 19. And then you're going to see the seventh trumpet had, uh, after it blows, the great day of God's wrath was announced, ushering in the bold judgments, which leads to, to this great climax of God's wrath on the world. Now, a title deed, or a will, if you want to call it that, can be opened only by the appointed heir. And, of course, this is Jesus Christ. He is the appointed heir of all things. And no one in all the universe could be found worthy enough to break those seals on the scroll. So 
So is it any wonder the Apostle John and, and everyone else is weeping? They're crying. They want to know what's in those in, in, within that, uh, that scroll. And he realized that God's glorious redemption plan for mankind could, could, of course, never be completed until that scroll was opened. And so the Redeemer had to be one who was the, the near of kin, if you will, the, the closest relative. And he also had to be willing to redeem. He had to be willing to, to buy the slaves back. But then he also had not just be willing, he had to be able to buy back. He had to have this ability to do this. But guess what? This is the glorious truth in Christ. Christ meets all of the qualifications to do that, to be your kinsman redeemer. And, uh, and he did that, by the way, because he became flesh. He became flesh. He took on, now, now Christ has two natures in the one person forever. And so he is our kinsman redeemer. And he loves us and is willing to redeem. He paid the price so that now he is able to redeem. You see how that works? So now, because of that, we're, we're entering into this great worship experience here in Revelation 5. It's an amazing chapter, and we're actually going to discover four compelling reasons why you must worship Jesus Christ. Why is Christ worthy of your worship? Well, if you need to be convinced of this, look closely what Revelation 5 says. Because number one, we see here, we should worship Christ because of who He is. Because of who He is. So what is the Holy Spirit particularly pointing out to you here today? Well, in verse 5, He gives us some unique titles that are actually given to Christ, describing who He is. Notice, first of all, you can see where C.S. Lewis gets this from, uh, right here, that uh, Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, verse 5 says. Now, that's a reference. You have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. Don't, don't do it now, but in Genesis 49, Jacob prophetically gave the scepter to one of his sons, and the Holy Spirit told him to give it to Judah. And so Judah became the tribe of the kings after that point. And God, by the way, you say, well, what about King Saul, the first king of Israel? Because the Bible says King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So what happened there? Yeah, good question. Well, it was never meant for Saul to establish a dynasty because of the fact that he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so God used him to discipline Israel because the, the people had asked for a king as if God wasn't enough. And so God eventually gave them King David from the tribe of Judah. Now, you might be wondering, okay, that makes sense, but uh, why a lion? I mean, of all the things that God could have used as a title for Jesus Christ, why a lion? Well, the image of a lion is something that should speak to you about dignity and sovereignty and courage and victory. Because Christ is the only living Jew who can actually prove his kingship from a genealogy. If you don't believe me, read Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1 clearly shows you the family tree of Jesus. It's a wonderful record 
showing that Jesus really is king of Israel. And by the way, it mentions in Matthew 1 that Jesus is also, by the way, the son of David, which was a title that was often used when he was uh, ministering here on earth, showing that he is the rightful king of Israel. But the second title that the Holy Spirit gives to you here is that Christ is the root of David. There's a weird drawing on the screen here. But verse 5 mentions he's the root of David. And that means that Christ brought David as well as David's line into existence. And so as far as his humanity is concerned, Jesus had his roots in David. And as far as his deity is concerned, Jesus then is the root of David. He's both at the same time. And so this speaks then of our Lord's eternality. And so we can agree with the prophet Daniel then that Christ is the ancient of days. And so this tells us how the Messiah could could talk about what the book of Psalms talks about, that he is both David's Lord and David's son. The third title that Revelation 5 gives you here is that Christ is the Lamb. He's also the Lamb in verse 6, as it mentions. A lamb, by the way, is mentioned at least 28 times in the book of Revelation. It's a significant word. So the theme of the lamb is, is by the way, it's, a, it's one that's important thread going all the way through the Bible. It actually presents the personal work of Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. Uh, the Old Testament asks the question, where is the lamb? And by the way, that was answered by John the Baptist in John chapter 1 when John the Baptist cries out, Behold the Lamb of God. And we see here in Revelation 5 verse 12, the choirs of heaven singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And that's a song that's probably going to be sung through all eternity. Now, if you look at your text closely, there's several features that indicate This is no ordinary lamb that you'll see running around in the New Zealand paddock. This one's quite unique, right? Number one, notice we see here, and this is why one reason we know it's Christ, because this one is strange. Notice you have Christ standing. He's standing. He's alive. He's on his feet. But he looks as if he had been slain. Another interesting feature is that Christ had seven horns. Now, in the Bible, horns symbolize strength and power, and the number seven is that number of perfection or completion, symbolizing then that Christ, with these seven horns, is, is, is having absolute power over all of his creation. Christ had seven eyes, showing he has complete knowledge. He has seven spirits, it says, and so this is describing, again, the Holy Spirit in His complete, perfect fullness. Now, that description of the Lamb, now, people have tried to depict that literally, and, and when, whenever artists try to depict it literally, you come up with uh, kind of weird drawings like that one there. You can find that on the Internet if you so wish, but... <clears throat> But when it's understood symbolically, it's going to have 
as it's supposed to, it's going to have more meaning for you because it's conveying spiritual truth. So remember, the number seven represents completion, perfection, right? God made the, the, you know, the, the week of creation, seven days. <laughs> there are seven feasts of Israel. God loves that number, seven, showing perfection and completion. So what do you have here? You put it all together in Christ. You have somebody who has perfect power, perfect wisdom, and perfect presence. Well, that sounds like some theological words we could throw out. Just change those terms, and you have somebody who has omnipotence, omniscience, and omnipresence. And that's all referring to Christ. All three of those attributes of God are also in Christ, showing that Jesus is God, and He's the Lamb who is the Son, Jesus Christ. So, we worship Jesus Christ John says, first of all, because of who he is. But there's a second reason why you must worship Christ. Number two is we worship Christ because of where he is. Where he is. Where is Christ today? Well, the good news is, friends, he's, he is not in a tomb. Jesus Christ is not laying in a manger. He's not in Jerusalem. He is not hanging on a cross. <laughs> Notice where he is. He is the ascended Christ, and he is exalted in heaven, the Bible says. Look at verse 6. And this ought to be an encouragement. Remember, who is the Apostle John writing to? He's writing to suffering Christians. They needed encouragement, just like you and I need encouragement. And this one Christ suffered. But the good news is, that suffering turned into glory. But notice where Christ is in heaven. He's not just anywhere in heaven. He's not sitting up in the, in the stands, observing on the sidelines here. Number two, we see that Christ is right there in the midst. The Lamb is the center of all that transpires in heaven. All creation centers in Him, because notice you have the four living creatures, representations of of uh, creation, you, and you have the representations of God's people. Uh, They're represented in the 24 elders. You have angels who are also around the, the throne encircling Christ, and they're there praising and singing to and about Christ. And then number three, you have Christ is right there at the throne. Remember, the throne is not a pathetic little piece of furniture. It's representing Christ's power and sovereignty and authority. And so some, sometimes, um, uh, some, sometimes churches like to sentimentalize uh, this sort of thing as they sing in their churches using the Christian poetry and hymnody. And, and uh, sometimes Christ gets dethroned. That's concerning to me. Uh, sometimes they like to, to emphasize uh, his earthly life, overemphasize his earthly life. And that's not necessarily wrong. But uh, sometimes poems and songs, they, they glamorize things like you have a, you know, the gentle carpenter or you have the humble teacher, and they fail to exalt the risen Lord of the universe. And so it's appropriate that when we come together on Sundays that we we don't just worship a, 
a babe in a manger or some corpse that's dead on a cross. Uh, Yes, sometimes we do those things, but we worship one who is alive, one who is reigning supreme as the Lamb of God, who is right there in the midst of all that's taking place in heaven. Songs of testimony are appropriate, okay? Uh, You have some in your hymn book, but they should never be the predominant thing that we overemphasize. But there's a third reason to worship Christ. Number three, we should worship Christ because of what He does. Verses 8 through 10 uh, mention some things what Christ does. These are worthy of your worship. And so when the Lamb comes, notice what does He do? He takes that scroll, and then what happens? The weeping ends, and then the praising begins. And so God's people and and the representatives of God's creation there join their voices together in a new song of praise. And note, by the way, in, in those verses that praise and prayer were united because you see in the Bible that incense is not just meant for smelling good. It's, it's actually a picture of prayer rising to the throne of God, which you can read about in Revelation 6. So what, what has Christ done? Well, in, in verse 9, we see that, number one, Christ receives worship. He receives worship in verse 9. Because they're singing this new song about Christ, and they're saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. By the way, to worship, may I remind you, just means you're ascribing worth. You're ascribing worth. What worth should we be ascribing to Christ? Well, Jesus alone is worthy. And so when we come on Sundays and... And uh, at least in my my mind, I'm trying to to have a hymn, at least one hymn, that lifts our minds, our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, just like they're doing here. Um, a lot of contemporary songs like to like to bring the focus to me, I. Again, those things are appropriate in, in the context in a certain amount. And so they, they, some of them emphasize the believer's experience. And sometimes uh, the Lord's glory gets ignored, and that's a shame. Now, so again, certainly there's a kind of a place for, for hymnody and songs uh, in that kind of a category, but nothing can compare with adoring Christ in our spiritual worship. Why is why should you be ascribing worth to Christ? Notice what the text says, because it says about Christ that he was slain and he redeemed these people by his blood. The word slain, it's not just any kind of slain. It was a violent slaying. And so heaven is singing about the cross and all the blood that went with it. Uh sad, I read about a particular denomination that actually revised its official hymnal and removed all the songs out of its hymnal that talked about the blood of Christ. Well, that's interesting, because the hymnal in heaven didn't do that. The hymnal in heaven will never remove the blood of Christ. This, this will be the song for all eternity 
They will glorify the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. What else did Christ do? According to verse 9, it says that Christ died for all ethnicities. Christ died for all ethnicities. Notice I specifically did not use the word race. Because the Holy Spirit says there's only one race on planet Earth. Only one race. But there's multiple ethnicities, all coming from Noah. And they spread around the world. But verse 9 mentions that he was slain for every tribe and language and people and nation. So John's affirming here the Lamb died for all of these people groups. That's just what ethnicity means. And by the way, the more you meditate upon the power as well as the scope here of Christ's work on the cross, the more humbled and worshipful you should become. The Bible says that sinners were ransomed. You understand what that concept means to be ransomed? You were held as a slave. You were kidnapped. But Christ comes and buys you back. You were ransomed out of every tribe and language, people and nation. The word tribe there is referring to a common ancestor. The word language is just a common language. And then, of course, people there is referring to a common race. And then nations breaking that down into a common rule or government. So God doesn't just love the Jew. You can thank God. He also loves Gentiles. God loves all ethnicities, and His desire is that this message of redemption is to be taken to an entire world, all the creatures of the earth. But in verse 10, we see that Christ makes priest. He makes priest. I love that truth, because one of the Baptist distinctives is is this great theological truth called the priesthood of the believer. I hope you believe in the priesthood of the believer. Because in in verse 10, notice it it says that you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why is that? Well, that, that verse there is announcing a very unique position that comes only to those who are in Christ. Those in Christ become a kingdom of priests. Here's why you need to know your Old Testament. You're not going to really understand the significance of that if you don't know your Old Testament, particularly a book like Leviticus. That's a great book. See, in Leviticus, we we learn things like Israel had one great high priest, and the poor guy was only allowed into the Holy of Holies only one time out of the year on the Day of Atonement. And and, and it carried on that way for hundreds of years until something dramatically changed. Christ changed everything. (laughs) Read Hebrews. And you say, well, how how do you go from the one priest system to now every Christian is now a priest? How was that made possible? Do you remember what Christ did when he was on the cross? He did a lot of things on the cross, I know. But spare a thought for those poor priests who are standing in the temple (laughs) right there in Jerusalem when Christ died on the cross. You remember what happened to the veil 
that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place? Right? You remember that place that only one guy was allowed in one time a year? And they're thinking they're all safe in there and they're not going to die. And then all of a sudden the, the veil ripped from the top to the bottom. And I'm sure those guys were thinking, oh no, I'm dead. I'm dead. That's not supposed to happen. But it did. Because Jesus died. And then he's the one who becomes the veil, the Bible says. And now the way is open to God so that every Christian becomes a priest. That's what Christ did. And because of that, he's worthy of your worship. But there's one more thing mentioned there, verse 10, that Christ now delegates his authority. He has all authority in heaven and earth, Matthew 28 says. But notice the end of, it says there that the saints shall reign on the earth. That hasn't happened yet. And so when Christ returns to the earth one day, he's going to establish a righteous kingdom for a thousand years, and he's going to, he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem there. And, and uh, Revelation chapter 20 says that we, we will get to reign with Christ. And creation then, the good news is, even creation itself will be set free from its own bondage to sin, and then Christ will reign in pure justice and power and all Christians will get to reign and rule with him. And because of that, he is worthy of worship. But number four, there's a fourth reason we should worship Christ because of what he has. Well, what does he have? Well, in these verses here, ending the chapter, you get this, this burst of praise. And you have all the angels and, the, and every creature in the universe joining together now in this worship of the Redeemer. It's a hymn. And in this hymn, they stated things that, that Christ deserved to receive because, why? Because of his sacrificial death on the cross. See, my friends, when Christ was on the earth, people did not ascribe these things to Christ. His first coming was a coming in humiliation. His second coming will be in exaltation. Now, many of these things Jesus Christ deliberately laid aside in his humiliation, but verse 12 states seven complete, perfect. Notice the number seven again. Seven perfect, complete qualities of Christ that demand your praise. Notice number one. The Bible mentions power. See, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. The Greek word dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. Now, friends, all the force of the universe here is flowing from Christ. And if you're a Star Wars fan, there's a force. There is a force, and he has a name. It, it's, it's not some mystical, unnamed uh, force. No, this force has a name, and his name's Jesus Christ. He has all power. But he also has wealth. Uh, usually this refers to ma the material kind of wealth, and the point is that Christ is worthy to receive all the wealth of the universe because it does already belong to him anyway. And number three, Christ has wisdom. He's all-knowing, and theologians call that omniscience. So whatever 
wisdom that you might have, guess what where, where guess where that came from? It comes from the one who has all wisdom, because that's what he is. But he is also all might. It means he has the capability and the strength here. So whatever strength you have then is flowing out of Christ. He has honor, it says. That just means to value or highly esteem. Christ is worthy of supreme value because he is of supreme value. Uh, But he is also worthy of glory, Greek word doxa. Uh, We often use the English word doxology. And so, just to bring praise. And so, the idea is that Christ is given glory for what he has done here, particularly as your Redeemer. And then the last one is blessing, coming from the Greek word eulogia. We get the English word eulogy. Eulogy comes from this. And the idea is here, it just means you, you speak well of somebody. At funerals, sometimes you'll hear eulogies. People talking about the deceased person. And they hopefully are speaking well of that person. And so this is a fitting way here to end these seven perfect, complete qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is all of those things. No one else is like that. And so he's worthy of your worship. But may I remind you, friend, that Jesus wasn't, in his first coming, wasn't born this way. He he died in weakness. He was born in weakness. He's the recipient, though, of all power. He became the poorest of the poor. And yet the Bible tells us that he owns all of the riches in heaven and in earth. In his first coming, people laughed at him and called him a fool. Yet he is the one who is the very wisdom of God. He shared in the sinless weaknesses of humanity when he was not here on earth. The Bible tells us he... He suffered as we suffered. He experiences the same things we experience. He knows what it's like to hunger and thirst and become weary. He has a human nature just like you. But my friends, today in glory, he possesses all strength. This verse tells us all strength. Now on earth, he experienced humiliation and shame as as the sinners of this world ridiculed and reviled him. And they laughed at his kingship. In fact, Even Pilate put a a, a sign above Jesus' head on the cross, and it wasn't meant to be true. It was a joke. King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the king of the Jews. Uh, Yeah, right. But he's received all honor and glory, and Christ has been blessed. He became a curse for you on the cross so that you never have to become that curse. That's good news. And so, because of all of that, friends, He is worthy of all praise and honor and glory and blessing. But notice this particular worship service climaxes here with all of the universe is praising the Lamb as well as God the Father. They're they're, they're right there in the center of heaven, if you will, at the throne. And there's, there's even, notice the Bible says, in verse 14, there is the Amen. There's this loud Amen that's coming from the four living creatures. Friends in heaven, it is appropriate and it is permitted to say Amen. I'm saying it the Greek way. So friends, we need to keep in mind that all of this praise is centered 
on a person, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer. It is not, as C.S. Lewis said, he's not just a good teacher. If that's all he is, well, that's not good enough. Because remember what Lewis said? He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's not all three at the same time. And if he is Lord, which he is, then you must bow down and worship. It is not enough to just call him a good teacher. He's not just a good teacher. He is Christ the Savior. That's a theme of their worship here. And so while an unconverted person could potentially praise Christ as the Creator, I don't think it's possible to sincerely praise Him as the Redeemer, as the Redeemer of His life. So all of heaven's praise came because the Lamb is the one taking this scroll from the Father's hand. He's the one who's, who's bringing to pass God's eternal plan that it will be fulfilled here in Revelation 6-19. through Creation's going to be set free from the bondage of sin and death. And the good news is, Christian, you can look forward then to a day when this Lamb here is going to break open the seals. He's going to put into motion events that he has already planned. They're written in the Bible. They're going to happen during the seven-year tribulation. And, and we're going to see that eventually this is going to lead to the coming on this earth and the establishment of his kingdom. And so, friends, as you share in these heavenly worship services, do you find your own heart agreeing what they're saying in verse 14? Do you find yourself, your heart rising up within you, and you want to say, Amen? Truly, truly? Hey, I agree. Totally agree. If that's the case, then, friends, now is the time to do this for the rest of your life and for all eternity. If you have never done this, my friend, if, if, if this is not your, your general way of life and experience, you've never done this, now is the time for you to get right with God before those judgments come, and it's too late. Today is the day of your salvation, friend. Don't, do not wait. And friend, have you trusted Christ as your Redeemer? It is not enough for you to believe that He is the Creator of the universe. Something must be done with your sin. There, there is a penalty that has to be paid. Either you pay it, or you trust in the one who will do it for you. That's your only option. You can do that today. Let me just close with a few applications here for Christians. Four applications for Christians. Number one. Be confident in your evangelism and the missions. How can you be confident? Well, knowing that Christ died for people over the entire world. Not just the Jews, or Jews and Gentiles, all ethnicities. And so you can be confident as you give and as you pray, as you go, because we, we got peoples, all ethnicities pretty much represented even here in our own country, right? As you talk to that person, you can be confident that God loves them. Right? So no, it doesn't matter what their ethnicity is. 
Give them the gospel. Be a faithful witness because you can be confident that God loves them. Number two, believe the time is coming when every creature is going to praise God and the Lamb, and this is forever. This is is going to come. God doesn't lie. He keeps His promises. He's made this promise. Therefore, this has to happen. Believe it, friends. And number three, be encouraged here by revelation that God has a plan for the future when evil is going to be judged and God's people will reign on the earth. What a glorious future to look forward to. Do you believe this? This is something you need to believe. This is something you need to be encouraged by, friend. God hasn't lost control of his universe. (laughs) He is still reigning supreme over all of it. And then last, get ready for what you're going to be doing in heaven by worshiping Christ. And you can do this on an individual basis as well as a corporate basis. You can come together with God's people, and you need to do both. It's appropriate to do both. So, my friends, you have every reason, sorry, you have every reason from Revelation 5 here to worship Christ. Ascribe worth to the one who is worthy of this worship. My question for you is, are you doing that? Have you done that? Are you doing it today? Are you going to do it tomorrow? May God enable you to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us Christ. We're not worthy of Christ, but we're thankful that He is worthy. And He lived the perfect life in our place and died as the perfect sacrifice and arose and is reigning and is an exalted is right there in the center of heaven receiving all this glorious worship because he's worthy of all of it. We're thankful that we can know him and have a glorious relationship and fellowship with him. And if there is anybody here today, uh, those who, who, who don't understand what this relationship is and what, what comes out of that, may today be the day of their salvation. May, they, may their faith be in Christ alone. So by your grace, by your work, accomplish that. Those of us who are Christians, may we see all the implications coming out of, of, of Christ being worthy of our worship. May this be our, our life. May this be so important to us that it, we're, just, we're just pickled in it and it oozes out of us. May we not forget this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.